Lisa Ocampo is a Filipinx American Emmy Award winning director, writer, and producer, and the founder and CEO of creative agency WeSpark. She is also a survivor of child sexual molestation. But while most people will only see trauma and darkness in such a story, and rightly so, Kisa's story is all the more incredible because of what she was able to make of it. There is healing and a fight for justice, yes, but there is also light, beauty, happiness, ambition, resilience creativity, and adventure. All of these coexist in Kisa's world and make up her vivacious, multifaceted personality. My name is Leo Cruz. On this episode of What Glass Ceiling, we talk to Kisa Ocampo. Hi, Kisa. Welcome to What Glass Ceiling. Hi, I'm super excited to be here. Thank you so much for coming on our show. You are actually an incredibly accomplished woman. You have so many feathers in your cap. You do so many things. Can you tell us a little about yourself? Totally. I was actually born out here in California and um, lived out here in the Oakland side, out here in the San Francisco Bay Area until I was around seven. And at that point, my father wanted to move the family back to the Philippines. And the thing that he always told me when I was growing up was that he wanted to do that for me and my brother because he wanted us to grow up knowing the language. He wanted us to grow up with Filipino values. And I definitely think that growing up in the Philippines has given me not just a more full view of life in general, but I think um, just a wonderful perspective uh, on everything, you know. Um, after that, I actually moved back here permanently when I was 24. So you can imagine like a big chunk of like school. I had my first job, my first boyfriend, my first kiss in the Philippines. <laughs> but um, at 24, I decided to move back because I have grandparents out here who lived in Berkeley. And at the time, they both were ill. They had cancer at the same time. Oh, wow. Imagine? Yeah, that was kind of nuts. And so I just decided that, you know, it would be a great thing for me to come back and help them through their care until they were both in remission, which gratefully we got to. Tell us about your work because you are a CEO and founder of WeSpark. I love where I'm at right now. This stage in my career, I could not have, I don't feel like I even dreamed how awesome this could be. Um, because That's not to say that my life prior to this wasn't awesome because it was actually very interesting. It was one big adventure. I had a 16-year career in international broadcast television. I worked with ABS-CBN, Channel 2, back in the Philippines. I started in PR, moved to the chairman's office, which was like the best job ever. Um, and then, you know, I decided to come back here, right? So when I moved back, after my grandparents were both in remission, I was spending a lot of time at the studio in Redwood City. And one day, um, the owners were in town, as was my former boss. And they said, hey, you know what? We should find you something to do, right? I was like, yeah, I'm totally ready. Like, whatever you have, right? And so I found myself in community relations and PR, representing the largest Filipino media company in the world, in the United States, where obviously the Filipino community is so large, right? Yeah. And so um, PR, you know, eventually I ended up in production by accident, I want to say. <laughs> and, you know, the rest was kind of history. But actually, the last seven, five to seven years of my career at ABS-CBN, I really felt like I broke free and I grew immensely as a creative 
I don't have a background in production. I didn't go to school for this. I actually have a degree in pre-med. And oh. <laughs> I know, right? It's like, you know, I was supposed to be a doctor. Um, I can definitely take a blood sample, right? But I can't do anything more than that. Um, the interesting bit was, you know, we were launching at the time a new channel out here called the Lifestyle Network. And um, my coworker went on maternity leave. So my COO at the time, you know, we sat across from each other for a very long, for many, many years. Like I was right outside her office and she like almost like hollered at me, right? She said, hey, Kisa, um, you know, your coworker is going on maternity leave. You should produce the rest of the episodes that are left, right? And so I thought I heard wrong because I was like, produce? My God, I've never done that before, right? And so she just said, you know, listen, there is a wealth of experience and talent in this office. Go get trained. Get a crash course. Kaya mo yan. Ganun lang, diba? I ended up um, a few weeks later going on my first shoot as producer and writer in New York, in the middle of what they called at the time, the polar vortex. I mean, like island girl, polar vortex. Parang opposite, diba? But um, we filmed Rafi Totenko for a short mini docu-series called Oat the Record. And it was super hard. I thought that it was going to come crashing down. And so every day of that shoot, I just felt like, I don't know if I can do this, you know, People are going to laugh at me. Like, it's so hard. I feel like I'm being set up for failure. But I just persisted and I did it the best way that I knew how, right? Like, show up 150% prepared. Be ready to do 300% of the work. You know, because as women, that's what we do, Dipa. Right? <laughs> that is basically what we do. Right. You're very right. Exactly. And actually, you ended up winning awards for the work you did there. I won the first Emmy for the network with that first piece that we did. Um, Yeah, I don't know if you can see it. Let's see if I can switch my camera a little bit. Um, There you go, those little statuettes (laughs) there. Well, congratulations. I know it's completely belated, but that must have been quite the experience. I mean, learning on the fly, uh, being terrified of something that you thought you didn't know how to do, and you end up getting validated for it. You know, some people call it um, beginner's luck, right? Like, I think that's the one thing that I was really battling with because for a long time, I had this imposter syndrome, right? I feel like a lot of women, a lot of people of color talk about this imposter syndrome. It's like, am I supposed to be here? Do I deserve this, right? Like, for me, it was like, oh my gosh, can I replicate what I just did? Or was this simply beginner's luck, Um, you know? But I kept on doing it, kept on studying, kept on learning on the fly, kept my ears open, my eyes open. And I did it again on a much larger scale, this time directing. And I won the second Emmy um, for the network. So that was very exciting. And obviously, it was a team. Yeah. It was a whole team. And I was so lucky to be able to work with such amazing people at ABS. Do you still work for ABS now? No, I don't. You know, the interesting thing, Leah, is that Last year, um, we found ourselves in what I like to call a bit of a pickle. <laughs> it was a bit of a pickle because, I mean, obviously the pandemic um, had hit in March. But even beyond that, ABS-CBN found itself, um, you know, I want to say like at the mercy of President Rodrigo Duterte. And um, there was this whole thing about, you know, the renewal of the franchising license. 
what that meant is that, you know, they had to lay off, I want to say maybe up to 70, 80% of the workforce out here. And some of the best people in the industry, but that's, that's what happened. What was it like to have the rug ripped out from underneath you like that? Production, you you kind of bond together as a family. I think it's also an industry thing because you go through so... I mean, speaking from experience, you go through so many tiny little hardships every single day. So the bond, the bond honestly, is a little different there. And to have that taken away from you, to have the security of a job taken away from you... And in the middle sort of, of a pandemic. In the middle of a pandemic and sort of be forced to stand on your own feet. What was that like? I was terrified, you know, and like, I think even beyond that, there was almost this collective concern for our co-workers. Paano si ganyan? Ako, mag-isa lang ako, pero, you know, si ganito, may anak sila, right? Like, they have like three, four children. They have aging parents. How, what's going to happen to them, you know, if they don't have as basic as like health insurance, right? Like, what happens if you get sick? And I think more than anything, it was really like panic. I don't think any of us were angry with ABS. You know, we walked away with a lot less than we should have if we were let go under different circumstances, right? Like, I think if you compare it to a lot of other situations where there were retrenchments and layoffs, we definitely did not get um, the same package, right? Let's put it that, let's put it that simply. But I don't think there was really anger. I think it was more of like, how could they do this to the Filipino people? But I think where what we couldn't really piece together in our minds was how could they do this to the poorest of the poor during the pandemic? Na mawalan sila ng source of information. Right? How would you even know that there's like, you know, what it even was or how you how you can even get infected if you don't even have access to something as basic as radio a radio station like DZMM. Yeah. How, you, yeah. Know? you also have another side to you. You're you're actually quite a staunch advocate for for women and for children and you don't just talk the talk, but you also walk the walk. There's a lot of things that you've done concretely for the advocacy that you fight for. You've been involved in so many organizations and and community and civic service projects. Can you can you tell us about that as well? Yeah, you know, I think, you know, to be honest, Leah, I don't think I really got this deep into, into the community and into service just because, like, <laughs> it's going to sound funny, out of the goodness of my heart, right? I think for the most part, it was because when I came back here to the U.S. without my family... I was lonely and I needed something to do. You know, like I didn't want to come home at 6 p.m. to an empty apartment all the time. So what did I do? I threw myself into, into the community, whether it was politics or nonprofits. That's what I did. And I want to say that eventually I found something that felt comfortable and familiar because, you know, my family in the Philippines, they're all in politics. I was raised in that environment. And I think finding that purpose and being able to sit with people, right? To talk to them and to just say like, hey, how can we work together? How can we reach across the table and say, let's do something good for the world, right? It felt good. It felt natural. I don't think that I particularly sought out opportunities that brought me closer to women and children, you know, as an advocacy. I want to say that they, it was almost like the universe lined it up for me. 
if I'm, you know, if that doesn't sound so cheesy, parang, parang ako yung nahanap, hindi ako yung naghanap. You know what I mean? You know, after 2008, when I got very involved in the campaign for President Barack Obama as, um, you know, a fundraiser and a community leader out here in the Filipino-American community, I eventually got appointed to a government position. I was a commissioner for the San Mateo County Commission on the Status of Women. I found myself sometimes at juvenile detention areas, detention halls with girls under the age of, obviously it's like usually 18 and under, right? So I would do yoga with them. And while doing yoga, you know, people would sometimes, like the girls would sometimes ask me about things like, what's it like to have a job? Do you have a boyfriend? (laughs) Sometimes the questions were like, as basic as is a tampon better than a than a pad you know like you have to remember a lot of these girls that were there were sometimes like 12 13 right walang mom walang dad and it, they just so happened to find themselves in sticky situations and they were really growing up in this in this environment and so and i think yeah you know my eventually the satisfaction that i got was really from discovering that by giving my time and my friendship and resources, right, my opinions, my thoughts as a woman of color, I felt that it was very healing to me. What do you mean healing? Healing in what sense? So a lot of the girls that that would often find themselves within the criminal justice system were often victims of abuse, um, you know, maybe it it was actually not a very um it's not a very like uncommon story that you know their mom was maybe um a sex worker father in prison right it's not uncommon um and i think by hearing their stories and kind of how they were struggling it kind of spoke to a part of me that i felt i just wanted to like shut down and hide and run away from, you know, um, I, I am actually a a survivor of child, uh, molestation. Um, and it happened when I was very, very young. I was a toddler. It was when, was when it started. I was a toddler. And, you know, I know that you're a mom. How old is your, how old are you? She's three. So everything that you're saying right now is going straight to my heart. Yeah. No, I was two when it started. I, I just felt like, for the longest time, I didn't really feel like I had my family's support. Many people had known about what happened, but they didn't really do anything. And so for a while, I thought, you know what? Maybe this is really how it should be managed, diba? Ito na yun, eh, nag-decide na sila. They were, they're older, sila yung matanda, sila yung nag-decide. Siguro this is the best way to manage it. Until I started exposing myself to more and more of these nonprofits. You know, I met a lot of um, different speakers that would talk about surviving abuse, um, you know, domestic violence, etc. And I realized to myself that, you know what? This is wrong. Like, this is actually, this was a crime against a child that needs to be reported to the police at minimum. This was, this was when, you were, when you were already a fully grown adult. You, you realized this. I was in my 20s. But, you know, there was still a part of me, Leah, that was afraid because I didn't know what my rights were. I didn't know what to do. I was afraid, like, oh, my God, if this goes to court, I don't know if I have enough money to pay for a lawyer. Basic things like that, diva. Right? And it took me so many years. 
and so much exposure to these realities of the different women that we were serving through nonprofits, through the Commission on the Status of Women, until I realized, you know what, I would I turned 33 and I was like, this is it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to go to the police and I'm going to file a report. And that's where it started. That was the only point in your life that you, when you were a fully grown adult, when you realized that what happened to me was wrong and, and I have to stand up for myself. Not that it was wrong. I always knew that it was wrong. But I think as a Filipino, because you're taught that often the family is more important than the individual. And I think that this was actually a moment of my life where a lot of my values were, and my, my beliefs, right, were really challenged. Because I realized that, yes, like some people may benefit from my silence, but that's not going to be me. And it was a question of, am I willing to suffer and not be a whole person moving throughout my life because I was trying to please other people? I decided that the answer to that was no. How scary was it at that point where you realized, okay, this is it. This is where I can't turn back and I really have to take the step forward. I was scared shitless, (laughs) you know? Um, But the good thing is that the people who really mattered to me and my family, you know, my immediate family. So my mother, my father, my brothers, my grandfather, um, my cousin, my tita, one of them, at least one of them. Um, they were all in support of it. And as a matter of fact, it got to a point where my grandfather said, you know, if you need me to, to testify, I will. And so and in my head, Leah, like I had already gone through the process in my mind, like if this is what happens, ito na yung next move ko. When I go to the police station, this is exactly what I'm going to say. Because I already, like, I already called through all of the information in my mind from memory and information that was available to me, right? And so um, it was super scary. But, you know, when I left the police station that day, I was so proud I was so, so proud because I thought, you know what? No one ever stood up for me, but I did it for myself, right? Like, it's like when you look back and you're like, I stood up for like, for the two-year-old in me, right? Like, that was really big. That was big. If someone finds themselves in a similar situation and is at that same point, what are the steps that they have to take? You know, the first thing that I would say is go to the police, report it right away. Don't wait. The second thing that I would say is go to therapy. One of my aunts actually told me about this. She said, no matter what happens, I want you to promise me that you go to therapy because it's going to help you. I actually went through intensive trauma therapy and Leah, I swear to God, like if I knew how awesome this actually was, I would have done it so much earlier, you know? Um, and I would start there because it's a case-to-case basis, depending on um, depending on the severity of what happened. Previously, depending on when it happened, um, the district attorney would just take over. So you worry afford to retain an attorney was actually like baseless because in that case, the district attorney would provide a free lawyer for you anyway, right? And the reason that I talked about time is because, um, you know, after I had gone through this whole thing, right? Like <laughs> in my lawless words, yeah, breaking up the family, the right? 
um, after several months of this being reviewed by the district attorney, they, they discovered that it had, that the statute of limitation had lapsed, meaning I took too long. So parang may gap siya na parang you can, there's a time frame that if you, if something happens like this, if a crime is committed, you only have a certain number of years or months that you can file something for it to be actually, you know, um, tried in court, right? And I was frustrated because, like, yes, it happened to me. It started when I was two, but I didn't live here. So after summers, after Christmas, I'd go back to the Philippines. How could I even, like, you know, like, this law did not apply to me. And this was what actually compelled me to work with, at the time, my state assembly member, who's a dear friend of mine, He's now the first Filipino attorney general in any state, I believe, in the United States, um, attorney general Rob Bonta. And I swear to God, like, I don't see him as often. We don't talk as often, but I will always, always be grateful for what he did. I saw him one day at an event in San Francisco and I told him about it. I said, Rob, I'm so frustrated. This is what happened. He said, hey, you know what? I'm sure you're not the only person that this has happened to, right? So let's work with my legislative team. Let's work on a bill. So that's what we did. I was working with this team for several months to work on the beginning of a bill to remove the statute of limitation for all victims, all child victims of sexual molestation, abuse, rape, like everything, right? And somehow, you know, I think again, right, like by the hand of God, the whole Bill Cosby thing blew up in the media, So it was actually taken from us and it was now taken by a more prominent and higher office. I believe it was the Senate that took it on. But as the bill was being um, discussed on the floor of the state Senate and then of the state assembly, I was getting these updates from Rob's team. Oh my gosh, it just passed. It's now moved into a different, you know, and so I remember like the one day that it became law, I was just so overwhelmed because... I felt like, you know, I might not have been able to do anything for myself, but for any other child, right? It doesn't matter when you, you know, like when you report it, it's always, there's always going to be an open, like an opening for you to report it and to actually get justice served. And I think that's the most important thing. Like my family, some members of my family might not agree but I bet you my bottom dollar, if it happened to their kids, they'd be like, fuck this shit. Like, <laughs> you know, we're totally doing what you did. So, you know, but again, Leah, like, right, like life and family are so complex. And the best thing that you can do at any point in your life, in any situation, is to ask yourself, what would, what would serve the highest good, Right. Ano yung values mo? Ano yung, what are, what's important to you? What, what's right and wrong for you, Divine? You just kind of go by that, you know? You know, it's a painful roundabout way to making an impact on the world. <laughs> you, how do you reconcile the horror of what happened to you with the good that you were able to do? You know, I think this is where like therapy really came into play, right? I remember my therapist used to tell me that the world and the universe, even your energy, right? It's so vast and large. And the universe is large enough to be able to hold all things at once. 
right? Like you may have a death in the family, but it doesn't mean that if it's your birthday that you should be sad. Like you should be grateful that you're given another another year around the sun, right? Like, yes, there could be job loss, but hey, maybe it means that now you can rethink what you're doing and actually be very intentional about what you're, you know, what you're about to commit your life and your time towards. So I think it's just in kind of that understanding that um, it doesn't, like, just because something bad happens, it doesn't make all things bad, you know? Yeah. That's a, that's an amazing point to come to. I mean, no matter what your experience is, that's to arrive at that. It, it must be, it just must be so freeing and liberating to arrive at that point where you realize and you accept that all of these things can coexist in the same universe. But and they all do. Like whether yeah. or not you accept it is kind of what becomes the problem, but everything already coexists, right? Now, for those trying to heal from their own trauma who maybe are not as fortunate to have that support, what words can you offer them? I want to say that, first of all, especially if this happens to you as a child, no matter what anyone tells you, it is never your fault. It's never your fault. And you just have to know that. Because if you are a child, if you're under the age of 18 and there is an adult in the picture, it's almost like the adult is behind the wheel of the car and you're in the passenger seat, right? Like you're not even big enough to reach the pedal. Like you don't even have a driver's license. Like it's not your fault. And I think for me, that was the biggest thing. You know, something, I mean, going through something like this can really, can really, really break you as a human being, but, but you're here and you've created such a life for yourself. At what point did you realize even if I've been broken, even if I've gone through all of this, I have the right to build something new. I have the right to allow myself to dream and go about and experience the happiness in the universe. It's so interesting. Like around the time when I was processing a lot of this, I flew to New York to film Nicole Ponseca, who is one of the most prestigious leaders of the Filipino food movement out here. And this is her story to tell, but I know that it's already been published. Like there, you know, she's said it publicly it happened to her too. And I think that by hearing from someone else that, you know, first of all, it's not your fault that shit happens. And that, you know, when this happens, Leah, you have two choices, right? Like either you can go into despair, be completely angry and distrustful all your life, right? Or you can choose the other route, which is the route that both Nicole and I chose, right? And again, like, it's her story to tell. Like, I don't want to, you know, I'm, I'm not going to talk any more about it. But we chose a very different route, which was, you know what? We're not going to let these things win. Because if, if I fail, if I prevent myself from pursuing happiness and exploring the best that I can possibly be, it means that all these unfortunate things that I went through won. And I'm competitive. I like to win. <laughs> that said, can you tell us about We Spark and what you're busy with now? Uh, we Spark is just like the heart of my heart. Um, you know, after the layoffs that happened at ABS-CBN, I really had a moment, literally just a moment, <laughs> to think about how would I like to spend the next half of my career and what would I want to do? And I thought to myself, you know what? If I could actually recreate 
this business environment that I love, but rewrite the rules, how would I do it? And that's exactly what WeSpark became. My whole thing was, I think that it's so important to have diversity around the table from the very beginning. And that together, before you even launch any business or any brand, that you think about what positive impact can I have on the world? And how can I now bake that into the DNA of my business? Good can actually be profitable. And I think when I realized that, it set me off like, you know, it's what I'm doing now. I'm so proud that our team that is primarily by POC and, you know, and very much women-led in many different aspects, that we're now the voice behind so many of the large, the larger, I think, louder feminist movements, I want to say even in America. And so I'm very proud of that. Very, very proud of it. It's amazing how much impact you've been able to make there in the U.S. as a as a woman of color, as a woman of Philippine and Asian heritage, whether it's through the bill that you helped that, that you that you worked on or the work you're doing through We Spark. Now, given how active you've been in your community, working for all of these advocacies and, and now doing the work that you do, have you always felt included in society or was there a definite sense of otherness that you've had to work through and work with? Yeah, well, I'll tell you what. Um, I want to say that largely... One of the reasons why I left the Philippines was because I felt like I didn't quite belong. Um, I didn't, so I was actually told this by a boy. He said that I was too ambitious of a woman for him, right? Too ambitious. And I thought to myself, hey, that's a good thing, Diba. I like that. <laughs> oh, I like that. Thank you. No, but you know, um, I felt like I was a little too opinionated. Um, where I stand on many social issues, I want to say is a lot more progressive, um, a lot more liberal. Do you feel more confident and more comfortable speaking out about these things over there in the U.S. as opposed to if you were here? You know, I think that while it was happening, while I was shaping my opinions and my, you know, my value system, I think definitely being here was a huge help. I felt empowered. I felt heard. I felt seen. Um, you know, I, I was hearing stories from other people that were validating a lot of my fears and my feeling of brokenness, right? But more importantly, right now, I'm at a point in my life where I feel so self-made. I have done all the shit. I feel so whole, so complete. I can say this anywhere and I wouldn't give a fuck about what other people say. <laughs> well, honestly, that's a great place to be at. I mean, isn't that what we all want? <laughs> yeah, you know, I think we spend so much of our lives worrying about what other people are going to think of us. And we spend too little time thinking about how whole and how happy and how complete and healed we can actually be. And unless you're all of those things, you can't be great things anywhere else. That's true. You, you actually seem like a person who's also very proud of your Philippine heritage. You, you wear it on your sleeve. It's your heart. You wear it on your sleeve. Yeah. Tell us about the cultural nuances and differences that, that you've noticed, maybe, that you've felt 
while over there. You know, I want to say, um, thank you so much for noticing. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I not only wear it on my sleeve, but I actually wear it, right? Um, I've been known to like rock a see-through terno over shorts, you know, (laughs) or like, um, you know, like I'll have these like a butterfly sleeve top with like a mini skirt, you know? And I love it when people ask me like, where is this from? What's the story? I love telling them, you know, this is, this is called a terno. This is called a butterfly sleeve, right? I love it. What have I noticed? I noticed that so many Filipino Americans are now at a point in our immigration story as a people, right? Like, and when I say that, I mean like this spans over generations. We're at a point in our immigration story where we want to reclaim the parts of us that make us unique. This is actually not unique to the Philippines. This happens to many, many different um, cultures that come to America and make it their home. A lot of first-generation immigrants will tend to want to assimilate more quickly. So, ito yung kunyari, like the parents na, oh, you know, I don't want to teach my kids how to speak Filipino. So English lang ah. And by the way, like you're not bringing lumpia to school. You're doing peanut butter and jelly sandwiches like every day of the week, right? It's because they wanted to assimilate quickly and they didn't want their children to have as difficult a time as they did. But now we're looking at second, third, fourth, fifth generation Filipino Americans And more than anything, we don't want to be known as just an Asian American because guess what? My experience as a Filipina in America is way different from the experience of someone who's Vietnamese. I came here because, actually, I was born here pala, no? (laughs) I was born here pala. No, but you know, like my story is way different versus like a Vietnamese family who had to come here as refugees, right? Very, very different. And what I'm finding is that more and more Filipino Americans are really just asserting themselves. You know, um, the big thing that I've seen, um, again, like with one of my clients was just the conversation and the hostility around the use of the word Filipinax. Yes, that's a, that's actually a, a hot topic. Have you heard of that? Do they use yes. it in the Philippines? No, I mean, it, for a time, I think it was being discussed on Twitter. But but that's yeah. a very it's it's like a a tiny little segment of society. <laughs> um, so interesting. Yeah. So do you know that? Um, so okay, I want to say that maybe the first community that used it in a more widespread nature is the Hispanic community. So they started using Latinx and they say that the first time that the word Latinx ever appeared in the media and that it was used more commonly was in 2004. So they actually say that using the X in Latinx as opposed to like Latino or Latina makes it more gender neutral because then you're not trying to define a group of people by their gender or privileging a masculine, you know, story in a situation, right? Latinx is more inclusive. And so I think that predominantly, that's why many people in our community also identify as Filipinx. Now, people will say that, well, Filipinos already very gender neutral, right? Like we use sha, we use, yeah. um, right? Like it's not, there's yeah. no he, she in our language, but Filipino is already very gender neutral. But I want to say that 
because Filipina exists, it means that Filipino actually has a gender attached to it. Now, whether or not like I fully ascribe to this is kind of like not really the issue, right? I think for the most part, like I refer to myself, you know, oftentimes as Filipinex. Um, but if I want to be very particular, I'll just say like I'm Filipina American. I don't really have an issue with being called Filipina or Filipinex, but here's why I respect it right? I respect it because if there are members of our LGBTQ community that may identify as genderqueer, gender non-binary, right? And if they say, you know what, using the word Filipino or Filipina doesn't make me feel included, then by all means, I want to include you. So I think that on the topic of Filipinex, right? I don't think that people should be required to use it, but when other people do, it needs to be respected. You know. That's a that's a very valid point, if I may say, because it it you, it can get a bit prickly to discuss that here. I mean, yeah. it's not it's not exactly the kind of topic that merits a national discussion, but it's been talked about. Yeah. Do you think though that there's some sort of gatekeeping being done here with regards to Philippine culture? I mean, gatekeeping in the sense that the ones based here in the Philippines are, I don't want to say stingy, but very particular with Territorial, how... Territorial, maybe? Yes, yeah. <laughs> Territorial is probably the yeah. right term. Do you think that that that, that phenomenon exists, that, that gatekeeping of sorts? You know, it's interesting. Uh, um, yes, the short answer to your question is yes. And it's very interesting because it only happens amongst ourselves. Because when the Chinese and the Koreans started coming into the Philippines in drones, we were super welcoming. So when it's other cultures, I feel like we're so accommodating, but amongst ourselves, I think we're very, very hard on each other. Do I think that, so here's what, language and culture and values, they evolve. And if you don't believe that, you probably are not asking yourselves the right questions. They evolve, right? Like I remember when I was growing up in the Philippines, there was a time that gay lingo became a thing, right? Like the whole, like, and you know, obviously like working, but working by an ABS, all the more I would hear it, right? Like, you know, like a choo-choo-choo, charot-charot, right? You know, like you hear this, <laughs> when I was in grade school, those words didn't exist, right? But they're legitimized, so if you were to think of Filipinex American or Fili the Filipino American community or the global Filipino community as an extension of our Filipino community, then you should, I mean, I just think people should be more accepting. Like, hey, this is what makes sense to us here. Like if gay lingo makes sense amongst the LGBTQ community in the Philippines, right? This is what makes sense to us here. Are we very different? I don't think so. Maybe in some ways, but I think the deeper you peel back, like, you know, I can switch between both languages very easily, you know, and I'm super proud of that. There are many people out here who are, you know, born here, they don't speak the language, but they can understand it. I bet you that kahit sino pang Pilipino na kahit hindi pa siya marunong masyado mag-English, right? Like, even if it's like, nagsistruggle talaga siya. Even if you, like, spend 
30 minutes talking to someone who can't speak the language, but who identifies as Filipino, you're going to find that there are way more things that you have in common than the things that set you apart. And I think that's true for all of humanity, right? Like before you start judging, before you start treating people as less than equal, remember that there's so many things that make us more similar than things that make us different. You can't take Filipino American culture and only pick out the parts that you like. Meaning, you can't just pick out Garrett G because Garrett is half Filipino and he made $54 million selling an app to Snapchat, right? You can't just take Bruno Mars because he's part Filipino and he's like, obviously, like the best singer in the world right now, right? You can't take these little parts and not take all of us, right? And Pinoy's love to do that here. Like, mm-hmm. Filipino blood lang, you know, we, like, we, we, yeah, we embrace and, and we're so proud all the time. Yeah. 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 It's, it's interesting also to see how you really embrace that part of you, because I know we kind of touched on the discussion earlier about the generations and how now the, the, the current, the current generation wants to really embrace parts of their heritage, but there are some people who, maybe grew up there or grew up in other countries who would rather embrace other parts of their heritage. But, but, but you're really embracing your, your, the Philip, the Philippine part of it. I mean, how can you not? The Philippines is so fucking gorgeous. (laughs) Our culture is so bomb diggity. Like I'm so blessed that because of ABS-CBN and the different shows that I worked on, I was able to go to parts of the Philippines that I had never gone to when I was younger. And I think not a lot of people have even, like, have you ever gone to um, the indigenous, uh, you know, private owned land owned by the Tagbanwa tribe? I bet you you haven't. And it's so, so it's like, I've seen so much of the Philippines, you know, like, as far as just like, you know, I've, I've spent days with tribes, right? Like, filming for the shows. At the same time, I grew up there. My family is still there. Um, you know, out here, the closest people that I can call my family are Filipinos, you know? Because if something were to ever happen to me, like if I ever, you know, like touch wood, got COVID, where would I go? I don't know. But you know, I for sure can call my friend Barbara. I for sure can call my friend Mitzi. They're Filipino, right? And it's like, obviously, nagahanap tayo ng, no matter where we go, I think we're all, like the human, the way that humans are designed is we're always built to look for connection and to build a home somewhere. And what is home? For some people, it could be a house. For me, it's the company of certain people. I've moved from like apartment to apartment to apartment, which is very like, you know, it's very typical of living here in the Bay Area, right? And so for me, it wasn't really so much of a place more than it is about the people, you know? That's beautiful. I love hearing that. You know, we've we've covered so many topics, quite a range here, talking about your story and your life. And I really feel that we could go on much, much more. But unfortunately, we don't have all the time in the world right now. But before we end, can you give us, given everything you've lived through, given everything that you hold dear, can you give us the words that you live by? It's probably going to take two minutes, but I'll, I'll try to make <laughs> That's it. Fine. That's fine. That's fine. I think we can have two minutes. Yeah. I'm just going to say that no matter 
what your story is, right? If you come from humble beginnings, if you had some crazy experiences in the past, that as a woman, you just need to show up and know that you have a rightful place in every boardroom, in every room, and amongst anyone, right? Like you have a rightful place to be there. I think that so much of feminism has really become so important to me because I learned at one point that feminism is not just like angry protests. By definition, feminism actually means the radical idea that all people, all genders are equal. And if you think about that, what does it say? It means that if a man could become president, I could become it too. That if a man can, can be a founder of a startup, well, shit, I can do it too. If a man can win an Emmy, I sure as fuck can do it too. If a man can win an Olympic gold medal, so can women, right? So I just feel like there's a place for us. And unless we claim it, unless we talk about it, it's going to become an uphill struggle for all of us. So if we have the capacity to do it, why not open the pipeline and pull others with us as we climb up, right? Definitely. Thank you so much, Kisa. Thank you for being on What Glass Ceiling. Thank you. 